Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we get the status of investigations into the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, with the Justice Department pursuing not only the rioters, but those who planned and funded the attack, and with the House voting last night to find two more Trump aides in contempt of Congress. No Republicans, though, aside from the two GOP members of the House committee investigating January 6th, voted for the charges. It feels tragic that so many in my own party are, are refusing to address um, the constitutional crisis and the challenge that we face. We'll look then at an effort in Fresno to protect street vendors from assault and harassment. Forum is next. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. There's been a flurry of developments in the past week in the investigations into the deadly January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And here with us to help us make sense of what these latest developments mean is Andrew Prokop, senior politics reporter for Vox. Andrew, so glad to have you on today. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with the most recent developments first, and that is last night's vote in the House to refer to the Justice Department, criminal contempt of Congress charges against Trump aides Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro. They basically defied subpoenas to appear before the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. And we have actually a little tape from that last night, the vote last night that I want to play. First, here's Maryland Representative Jamie Raskin. We have two people who are flagrantly, brazenly defying the authority of the House of Representatives of the United States in order to avoid coming here to tell the truth. They are acting in contempt of Congress, and we must hold them in contempt of Congress because of that. I reserve. And then here's California's minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, basically calling the House committee's efforts, the select committee's efforts, purely political. For 15 months, Democrats have used January 6th as a blank check to trample on civil rights and congressional norms. They broke every rule, violated every norm, bullied every skeptic simply to hold on to power. So, Andrew, what do you make of the vote? And and also remind us why it was important for the committee to hear from or get documents from Dan Scavino and Peter Navarro. Sure. So uh, Scavino and Navarro were two very highly placed White House aides. Scavino was the social media manager, and he was often the person doing uh, the, the tweets that Trump would send. Scavino would be the one typing them out beforehand. Um, and uh, in general, Scavino was very in touch with kind of the, the online scene of the right and um, 
and including the uh, more more uh, not so traditional uh, Republican Party elements of the right, more um, uh, troublesome elements, we might say. And uh, Peter Navarro was the head of trade policy in uh, the White House. And so basically, this is just part of the committee's effort to document Trump's behavior in private and his discussions and his actions on and before January 6th itself. And as pertaining to both his effort to overturn the election result and in connection to the violence that unfolded that day and the administration's response to it. And of course, so no re- yeah, these go ahead. Are, oh, so, so Scavino and Navarro are actually number three and number four of of the people that the House has referred to the DOJ for political prosecution, for potential prosecution, for not turning over records. First was Steve Bannon, who was actually indicted and has a trial set for July. Second was uh, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Mm -hmm. who has not yet been indicted. So the question of whether charges will actually come out of this is an open question because because there was a difference in the earlier case with Steve Bannon. He was not a White House employee at the time, but Meadows, Scavino, and Navarro all were White House employees at the time. And they're making a claim of executive privilege, that they're allowed to refuse to turn over these records because Trump is the president and they want to defend the president's privacy at the time as they were working for him. And I think the Justice Department has to kind of figure out what they make of this argument and what they want to do with it. it it's not, it, it's at least seems to be causing a bit more trouble than the earlier prosecution of Bannon, which unfolded quite quickly. Yeah. So whether the Justice Department acts and ultimately the committee gets the materials or gets these men to appear, they did have one victory this week, which is that uh, they were able to get more than 100 emails from Trump's lawyer, John Eastman. I think that was on Tuesday when they were delivered. This was after a California federal judge made Eastman turn them over. Can you talk about the significance of those emails and this development? Yeah, so John Eastman was an, an outside lawyer for Trump, not a White House employee, who got involved in the effort to overturn the election um, particularly particularly the legal effort. He was um, involved in putting together the plan to come up with fake electors, uh, you know, an alternative slate of electors from the states that Biden narrowly won that Trump wanted to contest, and also to pressure Vice President Pence and to make sweeping legal claims about Vice President Pence's power to overturn or throw out the results in states if he didn't like those results. And obviously legal scholars have said that this this was just a wild argument with no real legal basis, but Eastman was the person crafting that argument behind the scenes in connection with Trump and, and the other lawyers advising Trump. So he had various emails um, that he did not want to turn over. This was uh, not executive privilege, but this was uh, he was making attorney-client privilege claims. And so he sued the committee, and this went um, before a federal judge in California. And the judge issued an order, uh, which was pretty remarkable, because it directly assessed the question 
of whether Trump had likely committed crimes. Mm -hmm. And that is because attorney-client privilege has an exception, which is known as the crime fraud exception. If an attorney is advising the client how to commit a crime or fraud, like how to actually do the crime, not just how to defend against accusations, uh, their communications do not get shielded by privilege or they should not be shielded. So the House, in its legal filings, made the argument to this judge that um, this is what Eastman was doing. He was advising Trump on how to commit several specific crimes, namely obstruction of an official proceeding, Congress's count of the electoral votes, uh, conspiracy, working with other people to obstruct the electoral vote count, and uh, simple common law fraud, making these fraudulent claims about the election being stolen. And the judge, David Carter, uh, ended up agreeing with the committee that it was more likely than not that Trump committed obstruction and conspiracy related to the January 6th vote count. He used some pretty strong words. He said they launched a coup in search of a legal theory that spurred violent attacks, could have permanently ended the peaceful transition of power. So a lot of strong words in this case. The practical upshot may not be so big. Uh, the specific crime fraud exception uh, only turned out to hinge on, on one email that could be uh, handed over or not handed over. And so, you know, the committee is going to get that document there and also a larger set of documents that were turned over uh, by Eastman as a result of this ruling. But, you know, we don't really know if, if those documents you know, will fundamentally change what we know about what happened here. It's usually safe to bet that they probably won't, and they'll probably be pretty similar to things that we've already seen in public. But, you know, they're looking for anything they can to help them put together their their eventual report on what happened. We're talking with Andrew Prokop, senior politics reporter for Vox you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation if you have questions about the investigations into the January 6th attack on the Capitol, or if you just want to share what you hope the outcome of these investigations will be. You can join us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. So, of course... Whether or not this judge opining about whether Trump more likely than not or saying that Trump more likely than not committed obstruction and conspiracy in terms of just how significant that ultimately becomes, I imagine if the January 6th, the House Select Committee is wanting to or moving toward um, recommending criminal charges against Trump, that certainly doesn't hurt do you think that's the direction the committee is moving in, Andrew? They certainly seem to be. And Representative Liz Cheney, the Republican leader on the committee, one of the, the two Republicans that are involved in it in some way, uh, has made similar comments in public. They, she wants to know whether Trump obstructed uh, an official proceeding, tried to obstruct the vote count, try to perhaps obstruct the response to the violence on that day due to, she said, either his action or his inaction, uh, whether he kind of slowed any sort of um, federal response to um, the, uh, the break-in at the Capitol and, and the mob and so forth. So 
I think it's pretty clear that they want to put together a report issuing their own personal verdict on this. They've kind of made their point of view clear in these court filings already, which is that they do think Trump committed these crimes. Now, the question of whether this will end in a big vote from the House to do a criminal referral about Trump, like we just saw with Scavino and Navarro, uh, that is a different question. And there are some mixed views on that within the House caucus. There was a, a recent article in Politico about this. Some, uh, some members of the House uh, Democratic Party appear to think that such a big vote would be unnecessary and maybe politically harmful for their vulnerable members who have to run for re-election in uh, districts where Trump is still semi-popular. So it's unclear if, if they mm. will end up taking that big vote on a criminal referral to Trump. I think the report will likely come to some conclusions about uh, Trump's criminal liability. But you know, in, in any case, whatever the House does or doesn't do, the ultimate decision on prosecution isn't up to them. It's up right. to the Justice Department. Interesting. Yes. So they're concerned that it will galvanize the right. And if they do, in fact, pursue or recommend criminal charges to the Department of Justice, because, of course, as you say, they cannot charge Trump. Only the Department of Justice can do that. After the break, let's really dig into what the Department of Justice has been doing. We're talking with Andrew Prokop, senior politics reporter at Vox. And you can join the conversation, listeners, at 866-733-6786 by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. We're getting in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. We're talking about the latest developments in the January 6th investigations, both by the House Select Committee and the Justice Department. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest developments in the January 6th investigations with Andrew Prokop of Vox, a senior politics reporter there. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation if you have questions about what the status is of these investigations or if you just want to share what you hope the outcome of these investigations will be as, as time in some people's view, is of the essence, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786 is the number to join the conversation, or you, of course, can post your thoughts online. 
So, Andrew, I do want to talk a little bit about the Department of Justice because we've seen in the last week that they are widening their investigation to those who may have financed and planned the attacks. They've been working, of course, on the rioters and the and bringing them to justice, but we're seeing more and more in terms of efforts to get to the people who were behind in terms of funding and planning this effort to stop Congress's certification of the 2020 election. So can you give us a sense of who in Trump's inner circle, potentially, the DOJ is going after and what kind of thing, what kind of evidence they're trying to get? Yeah, so like you say, this is a bit of a a transition of the investigation, it seems. There have been more than 700 people charged so far, but they have, I think, exclusively been people who physically broke into the Capitol or who were involved in planning such a thing or conspiring to uh, to break into the Capitol. So this this is very much focused on, you know, physical violence, trespassing, um, those sort of crimes. And there has long been a, you know, uh, an argument that they should cast a broader net and look at the effort to overturn the election results more broadly. uh, And also whether, you know, defining uh, the, you know, the crimes that took place on that day, more as the effort to overturn the election in general, rather than just the physical breaking into the building. Now, those arguments uh, also have some counter arguments, which is that, you know, when we're not talking about breaking into a building, we are, some say that we are just talking about, you know, political speech, political arguments. And and so what, what crosses over into actually becoming a crime here? When there's mm-hmm. violence, it's kind of easy to say. When it's just, you know, political arguments, it's a little tougher to say. So we've heard that they're looking at a few specific things. They're they're looking at who planned the rally. And, you know, that's obviously going to be an issue where free speech uh, is a big concern and potential problem for any prosecutions. But they're scrutinizing the groups and uh, pro-Trump activists who have planned these rallies. And I guess they're, they are trying to see, you know, if they were if they can make a case for them, either for actually, you know, uh, conspiring regarding to the break in at the Capitol or just a broader case for just trying to make kind of a problem on that day to try to stop the votes from being properly counted. Uh, So there's the rally planners and then there are potential government officials or people close to Trump who were involved in that broader effort to get Pence to try to obstruct the vote count, to create these uh, slates of fake electors, mm-hmm. uh, or um, or you can even go back a little earlier to look at um, Trump's phone call to the Georgia Secretary of State, where he asked him to, to find the exact amount of votes he needed to flip the outcome in Georgia. It's not clear how far along prosecutors are at looking at any of this. We've had recent reports that they have, you know, they've expanded their inquiry. They've sent subpoenas on these topics. They're looking at them, but how close are they to actual charges? And can they overcome, you know, can they be persuaded that charges are merited despite the concerns about free speech and, you know, criminalizing 
politics that uh, the, the Trump people will will clearly bring in response, uh, we don't yet know. Yeah, as you say, it's a high bar, and the Department of Justice is not going to pursue those things unless they know they can win. <laughs> it's just a huge risk, I guess, on so many levels. Uh, well, let me go to caller Z in Ventura. Hi, Z. Hi, Z. Hi, how are you? I'm well. Go right ahead. Okay. My feeling is if we are truly a country of laws and we truly believe that no man is above the law, then if the committee finds that he has committed some crimes, and I'm talking about the former president, despite the political backlash that there might be, we must stand up to this. And I believe that Trump went ahead and did all of these things because his advisors were saying politically they would never dare charge you with a crime. But we have to stand up to our laws or we're going to turn into a country that Putin will invade. Mm. Well, Z, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Um, Andrew, Z is talking about the committee recommending charges. The DOJ, of course, can also act on its own. Uh to charge. And so do you have any indication? I mean, I know that you said that in terms of their willingness to to go after his inner circle, for example, but this is also the president himself. I mean, can you just tell us what the DOJ has been saying or doing around this, what Merrick Garland has been saying or doing around this that, that you are looking into uh, in terms of whether or not charges on Trump are coming? Yeah, there there are different schools of thought on what is actually happening here. And I don't think anyone, you know, clearly has the right answer, except maybe Merrick Garland and <laughs> the prosecutors. Uh, they're not being that talkative about what they're thinking. Uh, Garland has said, and his other top aides have said repeatedly, you know, anyone committed crimes related to this event, they, they will be charged and brought to justice. He keeps saying anyone at any level. Uh, he's, he's said this many times in public. Um, and then you have the, I think many commentators, uh, other reporters, um, have seen or, or, or seem to think that there really hasn't been that much movement as far as we know, as far as we've heard about making a case against Trump. Um, it, it's possible that something could be happening that we don't know about, that they could be pretty far along. But, you know, for, for instance, as a, as a counterexample, there have been, you know, a half dozen or more stories in re recent weeks leaking out about the Justice Department's investigation of Hunter Biden and everything they found, what the grand jury is hearing, and so on. We haven't heard anything that says, you know, they're building a case against Trump. Maybe that is a long-term ambition. Uh, maybe they are very cl uh, slowly and uh, methodically, you know, going up from the bottom, building up a case to the top. You can say all sorts of things, but but an investigation this big is kind of hard to keep secret. And my personal point of view, I, I admit I don't know if this is true, is that um, is that they they probably aren't. Um, anywhere particularly close to to filing charges against Trump 
uh, at this moment. Of course, that could change if they get new information, if uh, they these other prosecutions related to January 6th result in a new information or, um, or help them build a case. But yeah, I, I, I don't see um, from my vantage point that that any charges against Trump from the Justice Department seem particularly likely anytime soon. Well, Chris writes, it's so difficult to advocate for democracy when the powerful in our country seemingly are above the law. It is so important for the democratic process to make those that conspired and acted to usurp the democratic process accountable, which is also an echo of Z's larger point as well in terms of the strength of a democracy being at stake here. Again, in terms of criminal charges, I do want to ask you about that other development that we've been hearing about, which was about Trump's call logs on January 6th and that like seven hours were missing from Trump's White House call logs. Can you talk a little bit about what the reporting has been around that and how much that point, what the significance of what that potentially points to or not? Yeah, so there was uh, a report from the Washington Post that the January 6th committee obtained the official White House records of Trump's calls from January 6th, and uh, that there was a seven-hour, 37-minute gap in the middle of the day, you know, encompassing most of the action uh, in which no calls are listed as made or received by Trump. So this immediately got people thinking of, um, you know, Watergate and the famous 18 and a half minute gap in the White House taping system that many believe was, you know, an attempt to erase evidence uh, of, of Nixon's culpability, not least because Bob Woodward uh, was involved in this new story as well. But um, subsequent reporting seems to suggest that this is not really a comparable situation. Uh, and, and that what happened here is a little more complicated because you know, it's obvious that these records are incomplete because we know there are many reports of Trump making phone calls to various people in the middle of the attack. But the the issue here is apparently that this particular type of White House records for Trump was habitually incomplete. It wasn't it wasn't, you know, just incomplete on January 6th because of a cover up or something like that. It, the issue was more that these call records track calls made from the White House switchboard. And Trump tended to use the switchboard at certain times of the day and not others. And he tended to not use it when he was in the Oval Office. So, and he was in the Oval Office for this period. So, so, you know, it's, there are unflattering reasons why he wanted to avoid using this switchboard. He, uh, did not like reportedly, according to CNN, uh, people knowing uh, in the White House switchboard operator's office, knowing who he was calling or who he was who was calling him. This was kind of a habitual effort to avoid creating a paper trail for himself. But but you know it, it it's sort of broader. It it happened this these records gaps. If we got the broader White House uh, phone records would apparently reveal, be seen on, you know, most days, uh, not just, you know, a glaring gap on one particular day. Mm. Well, let me go to Denise in San Francisco. Hi, Denise. Hi, thanks for taking my call. 
So um, a few moments ago, you were talking about how the Justice Department was really unlikely to charge Trump unless it felt it had a very strong case. And I do not understand why Trump's call to the Secretary of State in Georgia pressuring him on tape to, quote, find more votes, um, why that isn't clearly criminal and you know and and you know and and it's on tape so it's not like it's hearsay and um i i guess i i'm i'm pretty frustrated about the lack of prosecution of trump and i i i think there are other things that have come to light that were clearly criminal in the Mueller report but the call to the secretary of state of georgia is the only one i can name and it just is unambiguously criminal so um, what's the holdup with that? Denise, thanks. Andrew Prokop, do you have any thoughts on that, the call to Brad Ravensburger? It is a bit of a mystery. Um, we did know that the local prosecutors in Georgia, uh, in Fulton County, uh, were investigating this. So one theory about what's going on is that the Justice Department decided to defer to these local prosecutors and let them handle this issue. Uh, I don't know for sure if that's what happened. I don't know uh, if they have something going about the Georgia call, but I agree that it, it certainly seems to be something that um, that should merit a bit more scrutiny. And, and it's a little curious that we haven't heard anything really about them looking into it um, you know, with an eye towards building a case. We're talking with Andrew Prokop of Vox, senior politics reporter there. This listener tweets, the commission, I think they might mean the committee, has a good goal of preventing this from ever happening in the future. I would also like to see some of the Congress people who were involved in the January 6th insurrection out of the government. But it does not seem like that's going to happen. Even if criminal charges don't get brought against Trump, Cheney has referred many times to a dereliction of duty. What would the outcome of that be? Kind of like a censure and nothing will come of it? So that's what another listener would like to see in terms of an outcome. I don't know if you have a comment on that, Andrew. Yes, I think, you know, that the real opportunity for, for Congress to hold Trump accountable on January 6th was, um, was the second impeachment that happened in the month afterward. And because of similar reasons to why Trump's first impeachment failed, uh, specifically the two-thirds vote required by the Senate, uh, this second impeachment failed as well because not enough Republicans went along with it. And the second impeachment was was uh, notable because what was on the table was barring Trump from running for office in the future, but they didn't get the two-thirds vote necessary to do that, and they're not going to, obviously. So it seems like anything else that, that Congress could do would be pretty uh, pretty ineffectual in comparison to that. Well, Curtis writes, the danger of not prosecuting Trump is the likelihood of an even more radical right attack on democracy in 2024 and beyond. We've seen the beginning of the end to American democracy. This is not hyperbole. You can hear very much how our listeners, at least who are weighing in today, feel. With Curtis mentioning 2024, we also just do have to talk about the midterm elections. It's seven months away. And a lot of people are talking about if Republicans gain control of the House, there's a big chance that the committee, the House Select Committee investigating January 6th, 
will be disbanded. Can you talk about the likelihood of that and, and what the committee is probably thinking about in terms of what it needs to accomplish before then in case that happens? I think they are well aware of this likelihood. Um, the polls look bad for Democrats. Biden's approval is quite low. And the history of midterms mean that it's uh, it, it would be surprising, quite surprising, if Democrats managed to retain their very narrow House majority. Uh, so, and Republicans have been very clear they would shut the committee down uh, immediately. So uh, I think that the January 6th committee knows about this and they are going to make sure to complete their work to the best of their ability by December. In the meantime, what's the next thing or what are you going to be looking for to indicate that the January 6th committee is moving toward recommending charges for Trump? This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.